Well, good morning, everybody. So happy to be here. Grateful to Pastor Johnson for the invitation to be part of your missions Sunday. My wife Karen is here with me. She's back there with the Smiths, the Smiths and Joneses. They're about as common as you get in all the world. And we hang together with the rest of you erudite and very special people in this world. Um, it's hard to know where to start. Um, My whole life has been with the Christian Liberal Arts University called Bob Jones University, founded by my grandfather 95 years ago down in uh, North Florida. After the Depression, uh, they moved to a school that had been closed near Chattanooga, Tennessee, in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, it was closed because of the Depression, and they felt the school needed to be a little farther, a little more accessible to people coming down from the north. So they moved to Cleveland. After World War II, the GI Bill, which was deferred salary really for the veterans who had seen their buddies blown to bits in the foxholes in the war, the, the application soared just immediately after the war because they could get this free education. This little school of four or five hundred people suddenly in one summer had a surge of applications that numbered about 3,000. Well, they had to move somewhere. And one thing led to another and God put us, uh, I was only eight years old at the time, put us in Greenville, South Carolina. My grandmother said to my grandfather, that was our third, the school's third move, and my grandmother said to my grandfather, if you don't quit this, this school is going to be known as U-Haul University. <laughs> but uh, over the years, uh, God has enabled the school, 95 years ago now actually it was founded, to train men and women in all walks of life to be part of this unfinished task we just sang about. Amen. To go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Yes. Um, training preachers is what we think we do best at BJU, but we train about 95 different majors. But we tell the students, you're all being trained to be missionaries in some walk of life to reach people that nobody else could reach. Whatever your vocation is, that's your mission field. Amen. And you know, my friends, um, the world now is so globally connected. You may be part of a company that has overseas offices. Have you ever thought about going as a missionary and doing what you're now doing in uh, a place beyond the borders of America? Uh, I meet many, many people who are doing that. They realize that the world is not being evangelized very well. In fact, all the conservative mission boards I know are seeing a steep decline in new missionaries coming along. They come from Christian homes, sitting in good Bible preaching churches like this, 
but so many of them have no families that are vitally connected with the missionaries, their church supports. The missionaries come. They don't get invited to the homes of the people in the church. Uh, they come one day and then they're gone the next for four years you never see them again nobody knows who these missionaries are I have missionaries tell me with broken hearts they come back to America for deputation and they'll come into a church that's been supporting them for maybe decades and they walk in the lobby and the greeter in the lobby says well hello we're so nice to see visitors here what is your name well I'm here to speak today I'm a missionary of your church nobody knows who they are put yourself in their place We give lip service to missions. Um, We have conferences. uh, Special days like this. The missions begins in the hearts and the homes of Bible-believing, redeemed Christians. That's where Christian young people catch the vision for missions. And then, of course, it's continued and enhanced in the church. If there's not a mission-mindedness in the Christian home, there's very little chance that one of your children will ever end up somewhere on a foreign field. It is not my purpose today to preach a comfortable message. I'll just tell you that at the outset. If you need to excuse yourself, that's all right. (laughs) I understand. Mission sounds great and lofty and romantic. And uh, if it's somebody else going somewhere else with the gospel. We just sang this chorus here. We go into all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. We should sing this. A few go into all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. Most of us just stay here. It's been my joy for more than 50 years now to be on scores of mission fields. We have our graduates from the university all over the world. and Sometimes they ask me to come and see their works and be part of it for a little while. And, um. I just can't tell you what a visit to the mission field would do. Have you ever considered taking your family for two or three weeks to one of your missionaries and attaching yourself to their work for two or three weeks? Getting to know them? Cleaning? Washing dishes, you ladies, with the lady of the house? Going out and giving tracts and giving the gospel you guys with the missionary hey your children getting to see when my children our children my wife has been in heaven now for three years Karen is my present wife but my wife Beneth for 59 years I remember years ago I was at a conference in Manila in the Philippines and met a man I'd never known before he was a pastor in Guam in the South Pacific the Micronesian Islands we got to be good friends that week and he said hey why don't you bring your family Uh, my son and I will meet you and your family in Hawaii and we'll island hop all through the Micronesian Islands very primitive places and uh, we'll end up in Guam and you preach for a week in my church and we'll take an offering and somehow we'll, we'll pay for your trip 
my wife and I sold at garage sales everything we could sell and uh, the offering over there helped make up the difference and we took our children these three weeks it was life changing for our children I wanted them to see primitive Christian mission fields where people have nothing of the world's goods but they love Jesus Christ Amen. life changing would do your children a world of good and your grandchildren a world of good. Churches I know who are able to have people who are able to go for a week or so and go as a group of men and women from the church to visit one of their mission fields somewhere. Can you imagine how much it means to the missionary to have you come? say we really care about you we don't just send you money every month and say hi hi when you come by on your way somewhere else for a day but we actually come because we care about you put yourself in the place of their loneliness on that trip I described to the Micronesian Islands we were in the island of Chuk it's called now it was Truck in World War II it was the Gettysburg of the Pacific where we broke the back of the Japanese um, uh, fleet and uh, it was a turning point in the war of World War II for America. A little primitive place in the jungle. We were in this little missionary compound, and uh, it was just, you can imagine, hot and steamy. And the missionary's generator had broken a week before, and the parts had not yet come back from America, so there was no electricity. And there were two Coleman lanterns, one in the kitchen where my wife and our daughter and the missionary and his daughter were cooking, making some sandwiches, and one in the little sitting room. I mean, the little room was... Uh, the whole house was not any bigger than here to there and uh, maybe a third of the width of this room. Very tiny little plywood place. And uh, so the pastor and uh, my boys and I and his boys were sitting on the floor with our backs up against it in the semi-darkness the only light we had was the Coleman lantern and it added to the heat in the most awful way <laughs> and we were sitting there as the, as the gloom descends upon us in the evening and I'm thinking I'm 10,000 miles from home I'm going to be leaving here in about three days but this man and his wife are here forever unless the Lord moves them wonder if anybody back in America knows or cares they're even here I can't tell you how the encroachment of the darkness was like a blanket of depression upon me. The isolation of it and the thought. wonder if anybody knows or cares that his family is here for the sake of Christ. For the sake of souls. It would do you a world of good if you're ever able to go and be with a missionary like that. Put yourself in their place and realize how much it means to them that you are here for their sake. Let's bow and pray. Father, help me in this few minutes now to be a servant to your people. Thank you for a mission-minded church like this. For an evangelistic church like this. Lord, keep it faithful to you until Jesus comes. I pray you stir us up. I need stirring up. We give lip service, but not much of our own service. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I call your attention again to the passage that was read 
Just a while ago, I'll read it again in Matthew chapter 9. When he saw the multitudes, Christ was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And then on the heels of that, these words were Jesus' last words. This verse precedes the verse that says, and he was taken up into heaven. These were his last words spoken on earth. They were to his disciples. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. Remember, folks, he didn't say you shall be witnesses unto me to the uttermost part of the earth before he said you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and Samaria in your neighborhoods and nearby where you live. Uh, I don't suppose there's ever been an effective missionary who ever left the shores of America and spent his life in service of evangelism in some other part of the world who wasn't first doing that in his Jerusalem. It's really hypocritical, is it not? To talk about loving the souls of the world when we don't love the souls of our neighbors and our co-workers and people like that that we know, our relatives. I read somewhere that roughly 40% of the world's population does not know a single Christian, has never read a Bible, and doesn't know what a Christian church looks like. 40% of the world. There are some 200 political states, nations in the world, thousands of different languages, distinct ethno-linguistic groups and peoples. Currently over 5,500 of these groups have been virtually untouched by the gospel. Maybe we do a pretty good job of handing out a gospel tract at the gas station or the grocery store or wherever to our Jerusalem. Maybe every now and then we remember to do that, but we all have to remind ourselves, and I'm included in that, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. I wish I did it better. But when it comes to into all the world... (laughs) That's for other people. And we feel really smug and nice and comfortable that we're sending them a little tip every now and then, every month or so, of what we have left over so they can survive out there. So what the Lord said to us in this passage in Matthew 9 is simply this. It's harvest time. Amen. It's harvest time. It's the harvest of justification with the gospel message that we are made justified through the grace and mercy and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners are justified, made just in the sight of God through His atoning sacrifice for us. That's what this harvest time is all about. 
To tell men that the soul that sinneth, though it dies, it doesn't have to die, that even so in Jesus Christ shall all be made alive. Yes. Now this harvest for souls has been in existence ever since the Lord said in this passage, the fields are white unto harvest. I'm told that in the Middle Eastern part of the world where the Lord spoke these words, harvest was about four months after the sowing time. In fact, he said in another one of these accounts of, of this, similar, this same passage, Say not ye four, four months, and then comes the harvest. He said, I say unto you, the harvest is white already unto harvest. The harvest time has been in the world for just over 2,000 years. Amen. It's still the harvest time. The harvest that makes men justified in the sight of a holy God. We're called to be sowers. He said, proclaim the gospel to every creature. We're all called to be sowers. And in the process of that, sometimes He lets us be harvesters. Yes. I'm so glad that the passage in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower and the seed is there. It explains so much to me I would never understand otherwise. You know the parable. A man went forth to sow. We're told elsewhere that the seed is the Word of God. Okay, goes forth and he gospelizes. Some of that falls on hard ground, the wayside around the edge of the farm where the farm tractors and implements go. And it's packed hard and it doesn't have any way to get into the ground. It doesn't take any root at all. And then uh, some of it fell on stony ground and brought up a little shoot, but it didn't have any root system, so it perished. And some fell among thorns and it was all choked off because of the thorns. And some of it fell into good ground. One-fourth of all the seed that was sown fell into good ground, but all ground was not equally productive. And it brought forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But thank the Lord, there was something going on. Amen. There was some life there that was brought about by the seed, the Word of God. You know, sometimes we sow some seed and we get to see an immediate result. That's so exciting when that happens. So exciting. Uh, the first day of this of this year, I got up and I said, "Oh, it's a new year, Lord. Thank you for your Lord. What do I want you to? What do I want to see you do this year?" And I thought, "Well, Lord, I want to see you bring glory to your name this year." I was putting on my socks, I think, when I prayed that prayer. And I had decided that I, that was going to be the day I was going down to visit a man in rehab at one of our local hospitals. He had called me uh, some days before. His name is Larry Harwood. I had not, I'd not seen this man in 35 years. 35 years before, I was at a, at a, a wedding reception feeling very proud of myself as a man for going to a wedding reception. It was on a Saturday, nonetheless. I'm standing with some people. My wife and I were staying together. And here's a guy in, a, in an Air Force uniform. And I, he's, I'm Larry Harwood. Hello, Mr. Harwood. Didn't know him. And in a little while, somebody said something about my love for airplanes. He turned to me and he said, How would you like to ride in an F-16? I said, oh man, would I ever? 
I said, but civilians can't do that. He said, well, not normally. But if you'd really like to, I'll see if I can make it happen. I'd never seen this man before. I said to my wife, when I said, we've heard the last of this. Sure enough, I get a letter. Write a letter to so-and-so. Say so-and-so. Make a call to so-and-so. One thing led to another, and for an hour and 45 minutes, I ended up in an F-16 having the time of my life. <laughs> With the instructor, by the way. <laughs> I never saw that man again. I couldn't have told you his name for 35 years. My phone rings. Hello, this is Larry Harwood. Do you remember your ride in the F-16? Yeah, well, I'm the one who made it possible. I've had a terrible accident. Uh, I'm in agony and pain down here in the, in the rehab. I said, well, I want to come see you. Can you have a visitor? Yes. Went to see him. I didn't know anything about his spiritual condition. Nothing. About the man. So I'm, how's your wife? Tell me about your family. And all of a sudden he looked at me and said, I need to be saved. My wife's a Christian and she's worried about me because she says I'm going to hell. I need to be saved. I said, well, let's take care of that right now. Amen. And uh, I just had a note from him two days ago again. He's doing fine. He's thriving. His health's coming back. And uh, it show you how the Lord works. After that, about two months later, I get a call from a man in Sumter, South Carolina, where Mr. Harwood lives. He says, my name is so-and-so. I go to such-and-such a church. Do you know a Larry Harwood? I said, yes. He said, well, my visitation partner and I were out knocking on doors uh, in a neighborhood, and we knocked on this door, and this lady came, and I told her about the Lord, and she said to her husband, who was back, come out here, Larry, just a minute. And... uh, He's, this man uh, gave him some literature and he said, well, I'm saved. He said, a guy named Bob Jones up in Greenville uh, led me to the Lord a few weeks ago. Well, this is a fine church and I have somewhere now to recommend Larry to go. How the Lord works in when, he's, when He's active in a life of a newborn child of His. There's nothing more exciting than being able and privileged to give the Gospel. Sometimes it's just like that. Most times you sow and sow and sow and you, Lord, bring me across somebody who's ready to be harvested. But when the Lord's time is right, in fact, Hebrews puts it this way, He appoints a certain day saying, today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. Today, when, when God says, this is your day. Maybe there's somebody like that here today. You know not Christ. Just a church person. You're lost as a a drunkard in a ditch. The self-righteous need Christ as much as as the depraved sinner needs Christ. We're all sinners. Uh, A student came to me a while back and he said, I want to tell you something. He said, uh, uh, I came as a freshman. I'm a freshman here. And he said, I got saved about six weeks ago in chapel. I said, tell me about it. Well, he said, my uncle is a graduate of the university. Uh, I grew up in a good church and a good Christian school. I knew how to talk the language and all of that, but I cared nothing at all about Jesus Christ. But my uncle, who thought uh, I needed to come to Bob Jones University, and he said, I didn't have any direction for my life when I graduated this last spring. And my uncle said, I'll pay your way for four years if you would go there. Mm-hmm. I said, I didn't have anything better to do, so I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the front row. 
about six weeks into the school year, and one day you're preaching. He said, I'm not paying a bit of attention. I don't care. He said, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably being very disobedient and looking at my phone the whole time and playing games and whatever. He said, all of a sudden I heard the words, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he said, it was like a rapier that went into my heart. And I got saved right there in my seat. Went back to my room, picked up my Bible. I hadn't picked up my Bible in I don't know when. And I started reading until I had to go to class. And he said, even there, right then, I knew God had called me to preach. And I'm going to change my measure and so forth. When it's called today, when the Holy Spirit says, today, I'm talking to you, sinner. Today is the day of salvation. How wonderful that is. But it doesn't happen every day. And so we get weary in well-doing, don't we? We start well, have a little spurt of interest in souls, and then it dies. We get distracted with cares of living. Let's grieve the heart of God. Because Christ said, right now, while his feet were still on this earth in human flesh, he said, this is the day. This is the harvest time. We're going to come back to that briefly just in a few moments before the end of the message. But I would like to submit to you that the harvest time where sinners become justified is one of two harvest times the Lord Jesus told us about. The second is the coming day of harvest of condemnation. And if we don't put these two together, we're not going to be very good harvesters in the day of justification, the day of grace. Listen to what the Lord said in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them, the one from the other, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, and the goats on His left Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he's going to say to the goats, Depart from me. Unless we catch a vision in our hearts of those awful words, that all unsaved people will hear at this coming day of judgment, this harvest time of condemnation and assignment unto everlasting perdition in hell. Unless we can get a vision of that, we will never get a vision of our role in the harvest of justification, the present harvest, the fields whereof are white. You know, my friends, let let me put this in perspective for you in another place. Turn, if you will, to uh, Matthew, Matthew 
13. Matthew 13. The Lord is talking about this end time harvest where the redeemed and the unredeemed are reaped and separated for eternity. Let's read about that. Another parable, verse 31 of Matthew 13, Another parable he set forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which he took and sowed in the field, which indeed is the least of the seeds. And when it's grown up, it is gathered among the herbs and becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And then he talked about in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven being like leaven that is put into a lump of meal and it grows in, 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 in the lump. And he said unto them, verse 37, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares, or the weeds, are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them, that is the weeds, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it shall be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels. They shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's coming a day when the wheat and the tares which have been sown in this world will both be harvested and separated for all of eternity. Did you notice in this passage in verse 38 the Lord in interpreting this to His disciples said the field is His. It is the world. The field is the world. He said the good seed in verse 24 is His. He said the servant workers who come and do this reaping of the end time harvest are His. The reapers are His. You see my friend, the Lord is in charge of all these things. And He is pleading with the, His servants today with the, to keep in mind there's coming a day of terrible, terrible calamity to all of those that the Bible calls weeds. Mm-hmm. We are all weeds until we're converted. Amen. Okay. And in that day, there are only going to be two kinds of people in the world. The saved and the unsaved. The sheep and the goats. The wheat and the tares. There's going to come a day of God's harvest. And if that doesn't grip our hearts, if we don't care then we're never going to be a missionary in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth. How indifferent we are to these realities. Some years ago when I was preaching a child, it probably goes back 30 years or more. You don't know me. I can't preach an evangelistic sermon every time. There's lots of things that need to be preached about. But it's easy for us to cool off and lose our evangelistic fervor. So I got up one day in chapel and I said, all right, I'm going to say something and I want you to respond as a group of people to me. I'm going to say to you, 
the most sobering reality in the world today is that, and you will say, people are dying and going to hell today. I will say to you, the most sobering reality in the world today is that, and you will say, people are dying and going to hell today. Let's say it right now together, okay? I'm going to say to you, the most sobering reality in the world today is that, and you will respond to me, people are dying and going to hell today. Let's say it one more time. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. You know, when people hear that enough, it's hard to forget. I have students that come up to me everywhere I go to preach and say, you know what? I don't remember a lot that you preached in chapel, but I remember that. (laughs) I got this letter from one of our graduates who was planting a church in the Phoenix, Arizona area. It pertains to what I've just said to you. This church planter said, My next door neighbor died on Thanksgiving Day. He was lonely, frightened, sad, and confused. I passed him on the sidewalk often. We nodded and smiled. Sometimes we even said hello. Once we talked about homemade donuts. Another time I gave him a ride to the store, attempted to befriend him, and began helping him with his significant problems. But there was never a rush. I I didn't want to pester him. He lived five feet from my front door. I would take my time. I would invite him over to watch football and eat dinner, but he was always too busy. No biggie. His front door was five feet from mine. I would have other opportunities. He was young and healthy, and I never saw it coming. I'm planning on living here for a while, and he just moved in. His door's five feet from mine. I thought I'd have so many chances to talk to him. Friday morning, I opened my front door and there was a gurney five feet away. My neighbor was gone. The mist of his life had dissipated. He was in eternity. I do not know if my friend, my neighbor's with Jesus or not. I'm sobered that I do not know. I was planning to ask him about Jesus. He lived five feet from my front door. I knew I had plenty of chances. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. You know, my friend, considering this end time harvest, it's going to occur because it's appointed and a man wants to die. And after this, the judgment. Yes. Hebrews 9.27 What will have to happen to me before I'm going to engage as a worker in the Lord's harvest? What will have to happen to me? I know these things are true. As many of you do. You've heard them for years. Something's got to happen to you and to me to make a difference. We're going to have to take seriously the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 9 for laborers to be sent into the harvest. Pray ye, He said to them, that the Lord, that Lord would send laborers into His harvest. You know what he, what he was doing when He said that? He said, you've got to partner with me in this. I came to redeem their souls. From this point on, as long as the world exists, it's a day of grace, and you've got to be part of the harvest, and you've got to pray with me in this matter. 
Let me tell you how that works. When you have a burden to pray for something and pray for something, every time you pray, it gets impressed on your heart. I have a dear friend. His name is Pastor Challenger from the island of Dominica in the Caribbean. It's probably the most uh, un, uh, unresort unresorted, I don't know, island in the Caribbean. It's, it's very primitive, very primitive. No, no big hotels and beaches and all that sort of thing. He was on a neighboring island called Antigua. He was a banker. He was being fast-tracked to go open the branch of that Antigua bank in New York City. He met a young lady who was working over in Antigua, but she was from Dominica. She was from an Indian reservation on Dominica. There are 2,000 Carib Indians. They were the original Indians in all of those islands before the Westerners invaded. And she came over from that island and she got to meet him and they fell in love and they married and they started praying for God to send a pastor over to Dominica to the Carib Indians. And he prayed for months and there was seemingly no answer. And one day, it seemed to him, the Lord spoke and said, why don't you go? He was a banker. And God got hold of him and he and his wife went over to this Carib Indian reservation. I was preaching down there years ago and got to know this man. I came to love this man. He had just a little tiny house, again, about a third of the size of this room. Seven, five children, and then his two parents. And uh, got really burdened. And so we sent a construction team down there, and they built a cinder block house. And uh, they built a school and a church down there. And. All, all of those children came to BJU. They're all serving God. All but one of them is back in the Caribbean, but they're all serving God. And it all happened because this man prayed for the Lord of the harvest to send somebody into his harvest. Yes. Are you scared to pray that prayer? Is it possible that God might turn things kind of inside out in your life? It's possible. I don't know. Maybe He won't. But at this much you know, there's Jerusalem. And I don't think that any of us are going to go to the uttermost part of the world if we don't go to Jerusalem. Amen. That's not hard. So if we're going to take seriously this matter of praying for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers we've got to be ready to be sent we must see people as the Lord saw them that verse that we just read in um, Matthew 9 the Lord had compassion on them his heart was broken has your heart ever been broken for people you don't know pretty hard, isn't it? (laughs) Very hard. Have you ever wept over people that you're missionaries, that you send money to, 
people that they send back in their prayer letter and said, pray for so-and-so. He's been under the sound of the gospel. Or, I think she's about ready to accept Christ. Pray for so-and-so. Does that ever grip your heart? Do you ever pray for so-and-so? Do you ever maybe even shed a tear? If we don't see people as He saw them, we're never going, not even to Jerusalem. Amen. Many years ago, it was 1981, Clemson was playing for the national championship in the Orange Bowl against Nebraska, and Clemson won, by the way. <laughs> anyway, my two boys and I got some free tickets, and we drove down to the Orange Bowl. I've never been to any other bowl game. Had a good time. But here was a sea, I think it's set to the seating was 72,000 people. We had to sit through this raunchy halftime show. I turned to my boys. They were late elementary, I guess. I said, boys, look at all these people. I said, I'd give anything if instead of this junk we have to listen to, I could get down there and preach Christ to these people. Wouldn't that be exciting if I could just go preach to these people? Well, little did I know that fast forward about three weeks, the school would be in a vortex of trouble with the national government, not the government, with the media. And the school was... was the media was knocking on the door of the school and I said, look, I, Phil Donahue's people called. Now you don't know, most of you are way too young. He's a, he's a fossil. I don't know if he's still living. But he was the Oprah Winfrey of his day. Okay, Some of you shaking your heads. I said, tell, I said my secretary, tell them I'm not interested. That they, that they don't ever talk about anything that matters. It's just a circus. I'm not going to be part of their circus. I'm not coming. Day after day, for two weeks, they called. Suddenly it dawned on me, well, I better talk to the Lord about this. <laughs> and I did, and I felt impressed that I should go. So I said, Lord, I'll go to do two things. If I can make clear on this program what it is that the media is lying about this school, and if I can give the gospel, I will go. Five minutes into the program, Phil looked at me and he said, am I going to hell? I said, yes, you are. <laughs> if you die without Jesus Christ, Phil, you'll be the victim in that prison house called hell. But you don't have to be there, Phil. I saw you witnessing to him. Well, the whole rest of the program for 55 minutes was all about the gospel. Amen. This one lady stood up and said, you mean to tell me? But I can't do good things and get God's pleasure. Well, what if I'm walking down the street and a building's on fire and at peril of my life, I go in there and I rescue 40 people from burning to death. You mean God? No, I said, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. Amen. Listen, I, I can't... People booed, people hissed. I've never been in my life in a situation where there was such hatred for the grace of Jesus Christ in my life. But what, what happened? God heard my desire to preach to 72,000 people, which I knew would never happen of its own accord. But they told me that that program 
had an audience of 55 million people. Yes. <laughs> said, thank you, Lord. It was all about you and your gospel. Thank you, Lord. What's going to have to happen to us? We're going to have to take seriously that people are dying and going to hell today and that there is coming a judgment upon sinners who will not let their sins be judged by Christ who died as a, to judge our sins on Calvary. And we will not go if we don't get our hearts readjusted. Amen. You know what happens, folks? I, th- this I read, I think, describes it, for me at least, better than anything. Somebody wrote, Many churches today remind me of a laboring crew trying to gather in the harvest while they sit in a tool shed. <laughs> they go to the tool shed every Sunday. They study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their plows, grease their tractors, and then go home. Then they come back that night, study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their plows, grease their tractors, and go home again. They come back Wednesday night, Study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their plows, grease their tractors, get up and go home. They do this week in and week out, year in and year out, and nobody ever goes to the harvest fields to gather the harvest. Mm. Mm. We have Sundays like this. Talk about missions. Feel really good that we're supporting some missionaries, wonderful people. we won't even go to our Jerusalem. All these people needed that the Lord was broken hearted over, they needed a shepherd. And we're told in John 10-11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That was all that was wrong with these people when He looked out and His heart was broken. They were fatigued. In their minds, they were weary of life. He said, you're scattered abroad. Look at these sheep, religiously confused, tossed to and fro, trying to make sense out of their religion and their world, in danger of losing their eternal souls and without any foundation of hope. We must cross the line from being hearers of the Word to doers of the Word. Amen. It doesn't cut it just to come and sharpen our tools and grease our tractors. And lastly, if we're going to ever be part of the harvest, not only do we have to have compassion as the Lord had it, not only do we have to realize that these people out there that we're trying to reach are fatigued and weary and confused by their religions and confused about the world that's so, so tragically convoluted. Not only do we have to realize that there's a line that we must cross to become laborers and not just onlookers but we must have assurance of the power of the gospel that what we're doing in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other most part of it is worth doing and that there's a power to change the direction of the soul amen to rescue the perishing and care for the dying that the dying might live in Jesus, the God of life. Just this week, I had an email from a man named Ramsey Kamar. Karen and his wife and Ramsey's wife and I are personal friends. He was a Lebanese pastor. 
He got kicked out of Lebanon because he was baptizing believers. This was way back now in the, in the 90s. While he was there at that time of great persecution against believers in Lebanon, somebody burned his car. Recently, Ramsey has, has been in America for a brief time and trying to start an Arabic church, felt burdened to go back and get a church going in the Middle East. He's made three attempts. COVID was part of the problem. His visa was part of the problem. His health was part of the problem. And the Lord kept shutting this door. And he wrote me the other day and said, I think I'm supposed to be here. I've tried my best to go back. But he said, while I'm here, on, on the 1st of January, I got burdened for the guy who burned my car in 1991. And I was able to trace him down. <laughs> and on the phone, I gave him the gospel for two and a half hours and the man got saved. <laughs> Amen. Talk about the power of the gospel. And he requested a man over there in Lebanon, a pastor that he knows to follow up. And since the 1st of January, after he got saved till now, the man, according to that pastor in Lebanon, this man that got saved has been transformed. His life is transformed. This same man, Ramsey, in the last few weeks, because he couldn't go back over there. He wasn't just sitting around letting people go to hell. And he uh, called his childhood neighbor. God brought that man to his mind. And after 11 Skype calls from January till now, the man got saved. Ramsey said, he's already calling me brother. And he's saying, Jesus is Lord. Well, transforming power of the Gospel. Do you remember being transformed by the Gospel? Do you know the difference it made in your thinking and your direction of life and the quietude of your soul? Do you remember what it's like to be saved? To be snatched as a brand from the burning? To be passed from death into life? Do you remember? Amen. Well then you know what the power of the Gospel can do. If you don't know that, you'll never go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. My friend, death is a reaper. The end time harvest is coming. And before the devil's scythe, the tallest grass and the fairest flowers are being reaped and cast into hell. You'll never take the harvest time which you and I are to be involved in seriously if you're not gripped by the end time harvest when the souls of men who rejected Christ are going to perish in hell. Amen. Foreign missionaries are nothing more than people who were first on a mission to reach American souls. If you ever get to a foreign mission field, it would be because you first got to your Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea with a broken heart 
and a vision of souls perishing in hell. The Lord said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Then it will be too late for the nations and too late for your neighbors. Dear Lord God, speak to our hearts. Don't don't let us be casual hearers of your word. Let us see the reality of hell, the coming judgment on sinners who would not trust your Son and be saved. Your Son who took our sins on Himself, that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness. So Lord, awaken us to our duty awaken us to the reality of eternal damnation for those who perish without you and at least Lord let there be some here who would start to reach their Jerusalem in Jesus name I pray Amen that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul. I pray that He's found yours. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we would love the opportunity today that you can leave with that assurance. But for us as believers, it should be our testimony and our response to that would be found in the course. So I'll go wherever He's calling me. I'll lose my life to find my life in Him. Stand with me, please. Thank you for coming today. We pray that will awaken us to that reality of people dying today without Christ.